Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to the Transporter Lock Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ken. Joining me is... Hello, Sabriel. Hi, Ken. I'm just beaming in and ready for duty. Woohoo! Wait, you're reporting for duty. I thought you were the captain. Yeah, still gotta report in. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly not to me. I'm just a lowly, what is it, engineer? Whatever you need to be. <laughs> Whatever the story calls for week to week, you are that role. This week I'll be random communications guy. <laughs> And this week, we have a special topic. Hardcore mud. Yes, Harry Mudd. That's right, that villainous villain from the original series who appeared in Season 1, Episode 3. That was his debut. He returned in Season 2, and then again in the animated series in the 70s, before finally being resurrected in the prequel, Discovery. Yeah, we've almost doubled his number of episodes in Star Trek already. That's right. Up until this fall, he'd only had two live-action appearances, and now he's had two more in Discovery, add in the animated series. And there are five episodes of Star Trek featuring Harcourt Fenton Mudd, as well as numerous expanded universe appearances, books, comic books, novels. We won't be discussing those because I don't think we've read many of them. Have you? I remember reading one when I was younger, but I didn't really know the character Harry Mudd at that point. And there's actually... A reference to Harry Mudd in Into Darkness. That's right, when they go to capture Khan Noonien Singh on the Klingon homeworld. Tell us about that. Yeah, they uh, use a ship. All it, all it mentions is from the Mud incident. We don't have any more details than that, but apparently in the uh, New Trek timeline, the uh, Kelvin timeline, they did meet Harry Mudd in between Star Trek 2009 and the second movie. That's right, and they confiscated a Klingon ship, which they kept in the Enterprise shuttle bay, thinking it might be useful someday. So when they find the need to use it, they refer to having obtained it during the mud incident. Now, I think if you read some of the comic books, the mud that they're referring to is not actually Harcourt Fenton Mud, but his half-Bajoran daughter. That's right, I have not kept up on the comics. I read one or two, and I think that had the... Kelvin universe going into the DS9 era Star Trek and it's all I've seen and I really want to go back and find the volumes of that. I want to read the comic books where Q appears in the Kelvin universe. Well, that, yeah, it's, it's the same one I think. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, well yeah. then I have not read any of the Kelvin comic books so I'm way out of date. <laughs> but anyway, back on track, Harry Mudd is I think the only villain to have appeared in more than one episode of the original series. And he has been now portrayed by two different actors, one actor in the original series and the animated series, and then another actor in Discovery. And we're here today to talk solely about this character, about his motivations, his evolution, why we think they brought him back, and where we think he's going. Yeah, should we get started? We shall. So we've already talked about at length his two Discovery appearances, which were in order Choose Your Pain and then Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. Today we'll be talking about his original series episodes, starting with Mud's Women, followed by I'm Mud, and then his animated series, Mud's Passion. Bree, can you briefly remind us what his debut episode, Mud's Women, was about? Yeah, so Kirk and crew find the ship is having some kind of distress 
problems, but it's running away from the ship and or from Enterprise. And just before it's about to blow up, Enterprise saves this man and this crew of three people, who turns out to be three beautiful, gorgeous women, who all seem to have an effect on the crew. Over the course of the episode, we discover that he is giving these women um, jello shots, which are (laughs) beauty enhancers, and he's selling them to miners to um, give them wives. And after time, if they don't take their pills, they turn back into their ugly forms. There's a whole story about that but that's that's uh, mud's women in a nutshell i think it's worth clarifying that the miners he's selling these women to are spelled m-i-n-e-r-s oh yes not m-i-n-o-r-s <laughs> the digging miners right not the dig dug miners right right. <laughs> <laughs> right so mud is basically trafficking in women they seem to be willing accomplices they are looking for husbands and they feel that they are too ugly without this drug to ever attain them so they are willing to be subjected to this modification in order to find a willing husband, even if it means that there is a price on them, that they're selling themselves. Yeah. So that was Mud's mission in that episode, and then he came back in the next season with I, Mud. <laughs> May I take this episode? Oh, please do. Uh, so I just watched it last night. I'd seen it before. And in this episode, the Enterprise is overtaken by an android named Norman. He appears to be a regular humanoid who is posing as a Starfleet officer, but he completely takes over the Enterprise and directs it to this planet where the crew beam down and find Mud in charge of this planet. He's like basically Lord Emperor Mud. And there are... 200,000 androids obeying his every command, the majority of which are beautiful women. And usually there's like 500 of any given model. So they, a lot of these androids all look alike. As it turns out, Mud is actually imprisoned there. The only command that they will not obey of his is to let him go. And then the Enterprise crew find themselves in a similar predicament. In the end, they are able to overwhelm the androids with illogic and stop them from their quest to control the entire human race by placating them and by serving them, and thus they are able to escape. However, Fenton is imprisoned on the planet. He's left there. And to keep him there, they create 500 android clones of his wife, Stella, who he once ran away from because she was so nagging. That was her voice that you heard at the beginning of this episode. Is that a rough summation? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a good one. And every time I hear Harry Mudd, I can only think of hardcore Phantom Mud. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I even was mentioning that during our episodes with him in it uh, from Discovery. Yeah, I mentioned when we saw Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, which was the Groundhog Day episode of Discovery, that that was the first time we had seen Stella as a person, because previously we'd only seen her in this episode, I, Mud, as an android. Yeah, and her outfits, I loved I loved her 60s-ish outfit uh, from, <laughs> from that episode. Did they keep the same fashion sense when they brought her back? The, well, they toyed with the, it was more of a, an homage to 60s fashion, where she had more colorful... Uh, it didn't look gaudy, but it, like, like 60s fashion did happen. But it, but, um, it did, was obvious not an homage to that era of clothing, which Star Trek loved to use bright colors. Oh, yes, they did. Color television was new back then, so they really wanted to take advantage of it and make everything really pop off the screen. That's right, with over 1 million colors per episode. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Now, just last night, for the first time ever, I saw the animated series episode Mud's Passion. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, so I've only seen this once before, and it was a few months ago, back before we watched Discovery, even. If I recall correctly, it's the episode where Kirk and Spock, they're on a mission to go uh, just incarcerate him. So they find Harry Mudd. Apparently, he has escaped the android planet, and he's out here selling some kind of love potion to a bunch of miners again. The uh, digging kind, not the dig dug kind. (laughs) (laughs) And... Things happen there, they capture him, they bring him back up, and somehow he gets some of this love potion into Spock and Nurse Chapel, and he basically uses Nurse Chapel as a way to try to escape the Enterprise. He is not successful, and I think he's left being incarcerated by the end of the episode, if I recall correctly. It's been a while. Yes, that is correct. In fact, he himself is shocked to discover that his love crystals actually work. He assumed that he was yet another fraudulent salesman, but when he plays on Nurse Chapel's latent interest in Spock and gets her to dose him with the love crystal, Spock actually does fall in love with Nurse Chapel for a brief while. And all the implications in shipping and Star Trek lore that would have. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we already know that it's Spock and Ahura who get together. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not Nurse Chapel. Oh my gosh. Although it was awesome watching that animated series episode to hear Nurse Chapel because, of course, just like in the live action show, she was played by Loxana Troy. Yeah. You know, I think the, uh, the animated series was great because it had almost every single character come back to play their characters. I think the only exception was Chekhov, uh, Walter Koenig, if I recall correctly. Uh, I don't remember, but you are correct that Harry Mudd, at least, was played by Roger C. Carmel in all three live-action and animated episodes from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I could digress. I could just say um, James Doohan did the voices of like every male character that wasn't the main cast. Oh my gosh, I hope he got paid for each one. And same with Majel Barrett did all the women. You know, I thought some of the women sounded similar. Mm-hmm, especially the, um, <laughs> ca- the Catlin woman. Yes, I noticed that. That was there was one scene where Majel Barrett as Nurse Chapel was talking to this feline character on the bridge and it sounded like she was talking to herself. <laughs> oh yes, meow. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz of course alien cats would be just like human cats. Oh totally. Random trivia, did you know we've seen them on TV before? No. They were in Star Trek 6, I think it was, in the background? No. One of the Star Treks in in Starfleet Command. I had no idea. Yeah. Now I need to go rewatch that. That is one of the best movies, after all. Yeah. Guess who's coming to dinner? So, wait, what? Oh, that was Star Trek VI. Uh, Bones and his Klingons are coming over. Star Trek VI was the first one I ever saw in the theater, and that was a, mo- a scene that stuck in my head. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Total digression, sorry. So, based on these early appearances of Harry Mudd, what, what, how would you describe your this character. What is your first impression of Roger C. Carmel's Harry Mudd? So I've mentioned this to other people I don't think I've ever mentioned on the show. I think people have this nostalgia about him being this kind of goofy character but he's actually very very dirty and downright... He's a jerk (laughs) censoring myself here again. Like he he is a bad, bad person who's only after himself here and I think he does the role very well. I like his portrayal of Harry Mudd. I mean, he was the original, of course, but... Why do you think he's remembered as a goofy character? I think it's just some of the... I, I don't know if I know the answer to that. He's one of the most memorable enemies, bad guys on there, and he did have some goofy qualities about him and his mannerisms and whatever like that, but 
And I think that's what people remember. I don't think they really think about some of his actions, smuggling women, whether they wanted to or not. He was being nefarious, capturing the Enterprise crew, and he was planning to leave them on a planet. I don't know how he thought he would get away with this, but he is not a good person. No, he's definitely not. He engages in some very illegal and illicit activities. I think he might be remembered as goofy because he is so colorful and flamboyant. He exaggerates almost everything, whether it's his words or his gestures. And even though he is, in some ways, evil, I don't think in the three original episodes he appeared in, he ever outright threatened to kill or murder anybody. Yeah, I was thinking there's a difference between him in TOS and Discovery. In TOS era, he never directly kills people. Especially, he would, I mean, all the Enterprise crew, if his plan would have gone successful, yeah, they would have died. They, he, they would have been dead because, he, because of his actions. So, I mean, I don't think he would ever, at that point, I don't think we ever saw him as an evil killer. Now we go back to the Discovery era. He is obviously, he has no qualms about killing people. Right. We don't know that he wouldn't kill in the original series. I mean, in fact, in the I, Mud episode, he actually collaborates with the Enterprise crew to escape the planet together. I don't know if given the opportunity, he would have turned on them and taken a phaser to them. I'd like to see him in this episode as something of a good guy, but he really isn't, especially when you look at how he looks at and acts toward and touches these android women. And even Chekhov mentioned something about that, about how that lecherous slimeball Harry Mudd must have programmed these women, what that means for how they're probably going to respond to his request. It's disgusting. Oh, for sure. I'm looking at his um, police record from the original series episode, and he does not have murder on his police record. Well, at least that's something. Doesn't mean he didn't do it later, though. True. We just got smuggling, transport of stolen goods, purchased a space vessel with counterfeit currency. Um, he was sentenced with psychiatric treatment, and the effectiveness of that was disputed. That's all we really know about his criminal record. I think in this, in I think in uh, Mud's Women, there's this long diatribe from the computer listing all his offenses. If I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure Kirk had to cut it short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what would you say is Mudd's motivation? He's not out to kill people in the original series or in the animated series. That's not his goal. It's not revenge. Why does he do the things that he does? He is totally in everything for himself. He does not seem to care about others and how his actions affect others. It's he is number one and he always looks out for number one. That is everything. So he'll do anything he needs to do to make sure number one is al stays alive and gets what he wants. Do you think that's all it is, though? Just staying alive? No, not just him living his life. He wants to have everything. He wants to be a rich man, and he watches, up, he watches his own back. And is that true in Discovery as well? Absolutely. I don't know if we ever saw him... Like when, Okay, in Choose Your Pain, when we first see him, he does not look like he's had any assaults from the Klingons. And we later find out that he ran away in the Klingon space to hide from, after collecting the dowry on his bride-to-be. He was watching after himself, just getting rich quick and running away. He was never planning to marry her. Or at least, it does not look like he was ever planning to marry her. And he was just watching his own butt when he was trying to hide from her father, Stella's father. Mm -hmm. And then when he came back to kill Lurka and steal Discovery, it was all revenge and watching over, over himself again. Well, that was actually more of a revenge act than we've ever seen him do before. Lorca left him behind, and, but, he was, but he wanted to sell the ship. I don't think it actually might not have been, been revenge at all. 
He was just, that was a side plot. He was just there to get the money when I'm selling Discovery to the Klingons. In watching the original series and the animated series again, I was struck by how much of Mud's actions are motivated by his ego. He seems to want to prove himself to be better than other people. He wants people to believe his lies, no matter how preposterous they are. And he actually seems offended or hurt when people don't believe him, when they accuse him of doing the very things that he has done. Other people's opinions actually seem to matter to him in the original episodes. Whereas in Discovery, I think he still takes things personally. I think that's one of the reasons he was trying to capture the Discovery specifically. Yes, it would have been very profitable to sell that spore drive to the Klingons. But I think he was drawn to that because it was helmed by Lorca, who had left him in that Klingon prison ship. I think that's what drove Mud to seek Lorca out specifically. He had a vendetta, and he was out to get this guy. I can get that. I can get behind that. But the way he did it wasn't just for self-enrichment. That's the reason he did everything he did in the original series was to make money, ultimately, was to be profitable. In that way, he was almost like a Ferengi. Whereas in Discovery, that is sort of overshadowed by malice. He really does want Lorca dead. Yeah, maybe uh, his attitude changed after 10 years. A little bit. I, I would expect that. There is that time difference between the two series, but I would almost expect it to go the other way. When somebody's opinion matters that much to you, I would almost expect you to be younger and not sure of, of yourself yet, not, and not instilled with self-confidence. Whereas when you get older, then you're like, I don't give a crap what other people say or do. I am who I am, and I'm going to do what I want, even up to and including murder. This is true. So the Discovery era of Mud almost seems more mature in that respect. Who knows what his life with Stella did to him? <laughs> That's true. After Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, he was reunited with his wife, who he had abandoned after only two months. Who knows how long <laughs> they stayed together and what effect that had on his psyche. Yeah, they might have been a happy marriage for a while there until he tried to get away again. I would assume that he was genuinely or so he thought in love with stella at some point i mean he bought her a moon that's not something you do on a whim <laughs> this is very true just do it if you're a ferengi right wasn't it quark's cousin who owned a moon yeah <laughs> gala's moon gala <laughs> that's right i always should have gone into tr trading weapons like my cousin gala he now owns his own moon there's even a memory alpha wiki for gala's moon <laughs> He was able to buy it with the profit he made selling weapons, mentioned in at least five episodes of the show. So going back to Mud, what is it that you like about this character in any of his iterations? Is there anything either about the portrayal of the character or about the character himself that you actually like? I think, uh, separating this, I think um, TOS Mud is a really good foil for Kirk. Um, they both play off each other. I mean, they both have this personality of uh, larger than life, I would maybe say. Uh, they're both smart men in their own regard, and I think they play off each other very well. And they had a, they had a, even the actors had a good chemistry together that I really like. As for Discovery's Mud, uh, Rain Wilson, he does this really, really good job of. I, I don't want to say he's not trying to emulate Roger Carmel's Mud. But he does this really great job of playing this him. Uh, I wish I could put it into words better. I think he just does this awesome, awesome job of playing this a grizzled-ish man. And I really like it. I, I can't put it to words very well. What about you? 
you're certainly right about he and Kirk both being larger than life and one being a good foil for the other. I like knowing that when I see Mud, that he is not going to be the source for the threat. Like in the original series, at the end of the episode, they end up on this barren planet being terrorized by rock dinosaurs that are larger than buildings. And that's the only time anybody's life is actually put in danger, and it's not something that Mud did intentionally. Uh, Similar to iMud, all those androids want to take over the entire Federation. That's not something Mud intended either, and he actually helps to defeat that mission of theirs. Mm -hmm. And so I like knowing that there's going to be a threat somewhere in this episode, but it's not going to come from Mud. In Discovery, that's not true. Mud is very much the threat himself. Especially in the second episode. Right. In the first episode, when he's just a prisoner along with the Klingons, he is spying on them, but he doesn't actually seem to do much that puts them in danger, except maybe, of course, feed information to Laurel that she uses when torturing Lorca. Mm-hmm. It also strikes me that in both I, Mud, and Choose Your Pain, Mud is a prisoner alongside <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. A, a Starfleet captain. And one of those Starfleet captains helps Mud escape with them. The other Starfleet captain leaves him behind. Well, ten years in war can do that to you. Plus, this man was obviously spying Lorca. Found that out, so he was traitor to the humanity in the Federation at that point. I would say Mud was also a traitor in I, Mud, because when the androids went to him and said, we need more humans, Mud said, go get the Enterprise and bring them down here and trap them here. Yeah, it's interesting he chose the Enterprise and no other ships. Obviously, he chose Enterprise for a reason, other than being the ship that's on TV. It sounds like Mud was often caught at his various escapades, but rarely bested. It seems like it was more a matter of him slipping up somewhere that allowed him to get caught by the authorities. I think he saw Kirk as one of the few people in Starfleet who might be his equal, if not superior, and that's why he wanted them brought as an example of the best of humanity. Oh, yeah, good point. Just like uh, Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty. That's right. Everybody needs somebody who can defeat them. <laughs> what don't you like about Mud? You know, I don't know what I don't like about him other than just being generally nefarious. He's a good, he's a good bad guy. Wait, that's what you don't like about him? <laughs> that's, no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm just talking this out. Other than his, um, I guess his sexual proclivities. <laughs> like he had no problem selling women. But that was also a product of the product of the '60s, where women were objects <laughs> on TV. I don't know if there's anything I don't like about him. I think it's a good character. How about you? Do you have anything you don't like about him? As you said, definitely his lecherousness. In the I Mud episode, the way he was pawing at those women and just ogling them. Granted, they were androids, so you could make an argument that they were literally objects. It was still very uncomfortable to see him objectifying them that way. Oh, yeah, even Chekhov did it. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little funny when he did it. But that seemed more like the exception rather than the rule, and that's why it was funny. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of the problem is just it was filmed in the '60s, and I don't think that would one would get away with that these days if it was filmed today. At least not in the same creepy way. Well, that makes it all the more disappointing because Gene Roddenberry was using Star Trek as a way to address the issues that society was facing in those days and gender inequality was very much an issue, just like it is today, just in different ways or degrees. These episodes, featuring Mud, 
I mean, I guess if you want to show somebody objectifying women and make that person the villain, that is one way to address that societal issue. But I don't really feel like it was addressing it, per se. It demonstrated it, but it's not like gender equality was the goal of those episodes, and it was achieved by defeating Mud. You know, gender equality, I don't think, was on Gene Roddenberry's list of things to really worry about, other than having women serve on the ship. But look at that. I mean, you have Uhura as communications, and you always have Yeoman fawning over Kirk. Um, With Gene Roddenberry's uh, discretions offset, I don't think that was really high on his priority at that time. I would certainly agree with that. I think in that respect that Roddenberry himself was also a product of the times. But I also remember reading this article earlier this year. There'll be a link in the show notes at transporterlock.com. The headline was, James T. Kirk is actually a feminist. And it talks about all the ways he interacted with women. And if I recall the article correctly, I may be misquoting, how he actually showed respect for the women that he was with. Yes, there were many of them, but he never treated them as less than. That's absolutely true. And I wonder how many of those episodes were actually written by him. Eugene Roddenberry. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, every, so many different episodes were written by different people, who all had their own interpretations of Kirk. Ideally, they were all consistent within Trek lore, but I'm sure each writer brought their own priorities to the character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. DC Fontana, I'm sure she would have a much different view of Kirk than others would. As we said in the original series and the animated series. What we see of him is somebody who is, in my opinion, a raging misogynist. He sees women as objects, as areas of profit and opportunity, and that's pretty much it. Do we see that side of him in Discovery? I don't think we do. Uh, Well, the profit, yeah, because he's running away, but we don't see the womanizing part of him at all. And I don't know if that's uh, TV growing up or if that's uh, a change in his character. It might be a lack of opportunity because in Choose Your Pain... I think he didn't directly interact with any women. We saw only male Klingon guards, Lorca, Ash Tyler, maybe a dead Starfleet officer. Mm -hmm. We think he was conspiring with Laurel, but we don't actually see him interact with Laurel at all in this episode. That's true, it's true. And then in Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, he has some brief encounters with Burnham on the bridge and in the corridor, but... He isn't trying to, like, sell her, and he doesn't insinuate, oh, you would fetch a fair price on the market. Yeah, no, that doesn't come up at all, so he's not uh, Orion in that matter, or in that way at all. (laughs) I don't know if that's, as I said, just lack of opportunity. I don't know if his womanizing ways only arose after he's reunited with Stella. Maybe during that time, he he gets so frustrated with her that he realizes, hey, I'm a young guy. I want to go out and explore the world. I want to sow my seeds. There are other women out there. I want to shave my beard, get this ridiculous mustache. Yes, exactly that. (laughs) But maybe it's not until he is stuck with one woman for a while that he starts treating all women poorly. Yeah, maybe Stella really, really got to him. And that is terrible because even if that's true, It's still nobody's fault but mud. Nobody Uh can make a guy into a misogynist. Oh, yeah. No, it's all him. He's he's a terrible person, no matter what actor or era. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I mean, the more I talk to you about him, the less I like him. (laughs) (laughs) 
See, that's what I'm talking about. He uh, yeah. is not the funny little dude that a lot of people remember him for. Did you know he was going to be in Discovery? I saw him in one of the trailer preview trailers before the show. I don't remember which. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I saw the trailer where somebody said, you're mad. And he said, no, I'm mud. Yeah, that's it. And because that was in a trailer before the show even premiered, I assumed it would be in one of the earlier episodes. Instead, it was more like episode seven. So I guess they had that many episodes already shot before the season even premiered. Yeah. So we've talked about how mud treats women, and we talked about the ways in which he is or is not a threat. Related to that, Bree, do you feel that mud has, call it, honor or morals or ethics? And if so, where does he draw the line? Like, what is acceptable behavior for mud and what is not? I think it's kind of what we've already talked about. He's watches out for number one, and in his world, number one is him. I think that's more of where he seems to stand. I mean, we saw him not have a problem with killing in Discovery. I don't know if that's true in any other real area, but... I don't know what kind of honor we've ever seen him have. I mean, you watched the episodes that he's in on TOS more recently than I have. Uh, what do you think? You might be better to say that on that one. Or you might have more uh, insight on that. In this case, I think I am going to agree with you that there isn't anything he wouldn't do. If Rain Wilson's mud is a younger version of mud, then we've already seen him willing to do anything. He will blow up the ship. He will kill everybody on it. He'll kill himself if he knows he's coming back to life. He will exploit a space whale to infiltrate a ship. He will consort with the enemy in a time of war, which is a whole other thing than just selling patents without paying royalties. It is <laughs> actual treason. So that version of Mud would absolutely do everything. Ten years later, when he's played by Roger Carmel, does he still have that same willingness to do anything? We didn't see it in the original series or the animated series. Maybe only because he wasn't presented with the opportunity. If Kirk's Enterprise had had some valuable secret that he could sell to the Klingons in a time of war, maybe he would have done the same thing. I'm not sure. You know, maybe it wasn't even treason. If he didn't feel he did not view himself as a member of the Federation. He was just a human who happened to be in the area. I mean the Starfleet views it as treason. But I don't know if he did. That's actually a good point, and that's a distinction that I've chatted with some friends before, which is that Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets encompasses planets, not races. You can be of a race and not be of the Federation, just like those humans in the Season 7 episode of TNG when Wesley Crusher came back. They seceded from the Federation in order to continue living on that planet that the Cardassians claimed. Yeah, or the race of people with the Rocketeer from uh, the the Akona, Outrageous Akona from season one. Oh, God. Must we remember that? Yeah, but there was the Rocketeer. He was <laughs> almost, was it, he was almost Riker, if I recall correctly. Really? Yeah. You mean the actor auditioned for the role of William Riker and didn't get it? If I recall correctly, yeah. That would have been a very different show. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So we saw that Mud is willing to do anything. What I would like to know is, how is it that he is so persuasive? And I'm especially curious in the original series where he got that time crystal from. I think they theorized that he got it from a fourth dimensional being. That kind of power could empower him to do a lot of evil things. 
and he used it to very good effect. It was only because Stamus exists outside normal space-time that he was defeated. How does he get all these marvelous toys? If we can see through him so clearly as a TV viewer, how come people in the Star Trek universe don't? Huh. You know, I... He is an enigma. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he has connections or uh, knows how to get these connections. I mean, he... He robbed the Betazoid Bank, a planet of telepaths. <laughs> like, like he has got, he's got some he's got some tricks up his sleeves or he knows where to get these tricks to put up his sleeves. It's interesting, but yeah, where 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 did he get these time crystals? And it might be one of those things like you know, just don't think about it. Just accept it for the story. Right, and same with the love crystals in the anime series, or even the Venus drug in Mud's Women. I mean, this guy, if he went to these three self-described unattractive women and said, I can make you beautiful and get you a husband. The fact that that offer is being made by a guy who looks and acts like Harry Mudd should set anybody's spider sinus tingling. Yeah, three episodes around him revolve around women. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, for the first 50 years of Star Trek's history, that is what he was most known for. But it's, So it's surprising to me that people let themselves be convinced by such an obvious scumbag. Uh, I mean, you can, scumbags can be charismatic. And apparently, if you like that mustache, it's a, <laughs> apparently very Oh, God, the handlebar mustache. mustache. <laughs> so apparently in the novels, Harry Mudd, his body's DNA was rewritten to look exactly like James Kirk. And this was against his wishes, and he wanted his own body back, but he couldn't get it. So McCoy used, like, a follicle enhancer to give him back his own handlebar mustache, at least. Oh, my God. <laughs> so now you could tell the difference between actual Kirk and Harry Mudd in Kirk's body, because one of them had a handlebar mustache. Oh, good Lord. That's awesome. <laughs> like this one small pity that McCoy was willing to pay him. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but going back on what you said, you said that Mudd can be charismatic. Do you think of him as such? Oh, hell no, but <laughs> <laughs> men don't have that effect on me. <laughs> nor on me that is true <laughs> no but but seriously he, uh, he's if he's playing D D, he rolled a he put charisma as a very high stat apparently he can be very convincing as an outside viewer we don't see it but apparently his suave and his graces are amazing and impeccable and able to charm the pants off anyone figuratively or not <laughs> Maybe 23rd century standards and morals and norms are different so that people don't see that kind of behavior as creepy or threatening. Maybe this is just normal in that era, which yeah, I don't maybe. think is true because we haven't seen anybody else acting like that. Yeah. You know, maybe he just wears um, that love potion as a, a cologne. Just a light bit so everyone listens to him. But even he... Are you talking about the Venus drug yeah, or the I, love crystals? Yeah, I'm just crystals? throwing out ideas. Yeah. <laughs> His jello shots. I don't know, because if the Venus drug is supposed to make somebody more physically attractive, I don't think it's working on him. <laughs> Maybe we need to ask someone who uh, watched that series, oh, anyone who is attracted to men, if, if uh, young or er, 60s mud is attractive in his own way. You know, it's true. In that respect, we don't have a lot of diversity on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. Oh, no. <laughs> we both came out after Star Trek the original series did so we don't have that perspective we didn't grow up in the 60s we didn't watch the original series when it first aired 
So maybe Mud came across differently 51 years ago compared to how he does now. Yeah. I don't imagine he came across much differently, but there is a perspective missing here. Do we have anybody who would fit that bill that could be on here? Please leave us a note at transporterlock.com <laughs> or email us at podcast at transporterlock.com. Or just tweet us. That's right, at transporterlock. <laughs> Are you noticing a theme here? No, no. Uh, I'll, try, I'll listen again. Okay. So let's ask ourselves this. We saw Mud twice in the original series, a year apart. We saw him several years later in the animated series. And then we see him twice in the first half of the first season uh, of Discovery. The only other time I've seen a villain come back that quickly was Saffron in the first season of Firefly, also known as the only season, <laughs> only of, season Firefly. of Firefly. <laughs> right. I mean, it's rare to see a villain come back that quickly. Even when Saffron came back twice in one season, it seemed like a lot. And I think Discovery could um, assume, based on the lineage of the Star Trek franchise, that they would have more than one season, and that they would have more time to develop and return to and revisit these characters. Do you really think it was necessary to bring back Mud so soon after he first showed up in Discovery? See, I don't, I don't feel the same way about Saffron being too soon. Or Harry Mudd, I think... It fit the story just fine. I mean, uh, ignoring Saffron from Firefly, but <laughs> but um, even though she's very pretty. But anyway, I can't now. Now she's in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Focus. Are you also a fan of the TV show Mad Men? Yeah. That, no, actually, I hated that show with a passion. Oh. But I know she's in it. Oh, I've never actually seen it. Yeah. No, it's too much uh, um, 60s men being 60s men. And I know just it's all like Harry Mud. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all come full circle. Anyway, back to um, and I know that was the point of Mad Men, but I still don't like the show. Anyway, uh, Harry Mud. No, I think it fit perfectly. I mean, we just saw him imprisoned, and then a few episodes later, he's out and he's pissed off. And I don't know. I think I think it fit just fine. I don't think we needed to see him any later because it wouldn't make sense, or at least this story of his wouldn't make sense in a later date. Plus, if they knew they were going to another galaxy, another universe, or another timeline, uh, it wouldn't fit anyway. Do you think that the time between his two appearances on Discovery was enough time for him to get all his affairs in order? Because he had to somehow escape Lorel's ship after having been left there by Lorca, reclaim all his equipment, which included the time crystal, because by the time he's imprisoned on Lorel's ship, he's already robbed a Betazoid bank, and has told Ash Tyler about it. So he had to get all that equipment back, pinpoint where Discovery was, and at least start to plan his capture of Discovery. Now, he had multiple iterations with which to do so, thanks to the Time Crystal. But still, he had to capture that space whale, put his ship inside it, get an Andorian space helmet. Was there enough time for him to do all these things? Oh, I mean, when you have, when you have a time machine, time is on your side. I mean, that's simple... Simple as that, really. And we don't know how many more time crystals, or we don't know the rules of these time crystals because we never really saw that, other than the thirty-minute thing. We don't know the rules of that of those uh, of that device to actually know if he had enough time or not. He obviously did. So he was up to something in the in uh, those few days or weeks. So you think that when he has that time crystal, maybe he uses it not just to execute bank heists but also maybe he just wants to really read a book and he <laughs> reads it for 30 minutes and then he resets time and he skips ahead to the page he left off on 
And so he can read an entire book in a half an hour, no matter how long the book is. Oh, I would totally do that. There's so many days where I don't have enough time. <laughs> Are you, imagine hooking it up to an alarm clock if you want to sleep more. No, I would totally do that as well. I'm just surprised that Mud would have his hands on such limitless power, and that the develop and that the writers and producers of the show would give such power to such a character. <laughs> Maybe he does have some kind of ethics and morals if he has that kind of power, and he only uses it to. Uh, <laughs> to just kill Lorca and not uh, take over the universe. Or, as you said, we don't know the rules. Maybe there's a limit to how often he can use it, and he's saving it up for the Discovery heist. Exactly. How do you think he got out of Lorel's prison ship? Because he was obviously conspiring with her to some degree. We don't know. <laughs> we really don't know. He could have used his little robot friend. I'm asking you to theorize. I mean, he's a smart man. He could He uh, probably use his little robot buddy for distraction. He knows where uh, the shuttle bay is on the Klingon ship, I'm sure. And there you go. Voila. And if he happened to have those time crystals somewhere where they did not find him, he's got all the time in the world. How that, how he would hide those away, I have no idea. I and mean, that's another question. But <laughs> Yeah, there's still a lot we don't know about Lorel either. So She might have let him go. It's, it's certainly possible, just like she may there have let Ash Tyler go. There you go. He said, I can get you that ship. Let me go. That would make sense. Or, hey, Laurel, I see you kind of like that other human, dude. I could probably get you back together. Maybe she didn't mean for Ash Tyler to escape, and now she's trying to reclaim him. Yeah. It just kind of worked out that way. Right. So, we've already seen him twice in the first half of the first season. He is now tied to his wife, and Discovery is somewhere else entirely. So both parties are pretty well otherwise occupied now. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll see Mud again in the course of Discovery? You know, I don't know, but if we do, I'll like it, because I think Rain Wilson does a great job playing this character. I absolutely agree with that. Roger Carmel did an amazing job creating the character, and Rain Wilson is doing a great job reinterpreting the character. In some ways, they're very similar. In other ways, they're very different. But they each bring something unique to the character, and this version of Harry Mudd is very memorable, very much left an impact, and is somebody I would love to see again. Yeah. But we don't know if that will happen, so all we can do is stay tuned to Star Trek Discovery to see if Mudd returns and to see if Discovery returns to this universe or galaxy or wherever they are. But for the meantime, that is the end of our character analysis of... Hardcore Mudd! You know, and since uh, we last spoke viewers i canceled my cbs all access uh just in time and now they are trying to get me back already <laughs> it was just two days ago and what are they doing to get you back they're trying to give me a 20 percent off for three months uh with the tagline nine thousand reasons to rejoin and rejoice as if there's anything other than discovery that i want to watch on cbs all access and apparently, you could share these TV shows you can see on Hulu and Netflix, which a lot of people have already. Well, you know, my Blu-ray of Star Trek The Animated Series is here at my house. That's how I watch Mud's Passion. But my Blu-ray of the original series happens to be at my parents' house, because I gave it to them as a gift. And so I did not have access to iMud, except through CBS All Access, which has, I think, all the live-action Star Treks to date. Not the animated series. I didn't see it in there. But... I could pull up any episode of TOS anytime through CBS All Access, which I have a year subscription to, thanks to Star Trek Discovery. 
Oh, so you're that's right. You're one of the three people who don't have Netflix. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's just three of us, and we all know do, each other. Do you have Amazon Prime by chance? I do have Amazon Instant Video. That you could watch on there. Really? They also have Star Trek? Yep. So does Netflix, CBS, and Amazon all have Star Trek? Uh-huh, and Hulu might do. <laughs> oh my goodness, they're everywhere. And I can now get the Hulu app on my Nintendo Switch. Uh, let's see, Hulu, Star... Yep, you can watch the original series, at least, and Next Gen, and Voyager, and Enterprise, and DS9 on Hulu. But nobody seems to carry the animated series. Uh, well, if it does, it's further down Google list, and I just did not scroll that far. <laughs> and, and animated series is on Netflix. At least it was. Oh, okay. So if you want to watch more TOS, especially the episodes we've mentioned, those being Muds Women and I Mud, you can do so on any of the services Bree just mentioned. There's also a <laughs> lot more of what? <laughs> All 18 different streaming services that are not CBS All Access. That's right. They're everywhere. <laughs> There's also a lot more Mud in the novels, such as the TOS novel Mud in Your Eye and the TNG novel The Light Fantastic. That's right. Harry Mud lived long enough to interact with the crew of the Enterprise D. So he has been around the block a few times, and he is still out there making stories for us to share and read. If you want more character analyses, let us know. This was an unusual episode of Transporter Lock, and we're enjoying finding these different ways to keep the show going during this hiatus until Discovery returns to the air on January 7th. So let us know what else you'd like us to be talking about on Transporter Lock. Yes, please do, because we don't know what we're going to do. (laughs) (laughs) no no please do we have ideas yeah no please (laughs) yes we certainly have ideas but we're always looking for more so until next time stay tuned and keep those hailing frequencies open this is Sabriel signing out (laughs) if you've enjoyed this episode please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com And I finished uh, Stranger Things season two. Yeah, oh, the show's so good. Uh, have you watched Stranger Things? No, I'm not too much into the scary. The horror and scary genre is not my thing at all. And I love this series. Uh, if that helps you in any way, they don't, they don't do the traditional jump scares. They don't do uh, gore slash. Uh, it's uh, more like tension and, and just like 80s camp. And it's done in an amazing way. In fact, there's only one jump scare I can tell you. And it's someone just doesn't notice someone walking up on them. (laughs) Did you see the Stephen King movie, The Mist? I did not. Because it, too, was not big on jump scares. And the ending of that movie, five years after I've seen it, still haunts me. Uh Oh, goodness. Because it was such a dramatic moment and... Yeah, it wasn't about making you jump out of your seat. It was just about how terrible something can be. Uh, you see, this isn't even that. This is very lighthearted. Uh, like I said, I do not like horror genre at all, and I love Stranger Things. So you might get a kick out of it, if anything, for the massive, massive amounts of 80s nostalgia of things that you grew up with. I would love to see Sean Astin and Paul Reiser and all the rest, but based on the trailers I've seen, I don't know that it's right for me. Maybe the first episode. I mean, the first episode, they got to the kids playing D&D. 
<laughs> Which actually was my favorite part of the second chapter of Life is Strange Before the Storm. I don't know if you've played that, but there's a whole side quest where you can play D&D. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't played it. I was avoiding Life is Strange until the series is out. Anyway, Stranger Things is awesome. I hate horror, and I think you might like it. If anything, for the massive nostalgia bombs. Even like the old rappers, old toys, old TV shows. Are you trying to make me feel old? No, because well, I feel old when I watch it. Because it's like my youth. I'm like, I had that stereo. I had that TV. I had <laughs> like all these things when I'm watching it. <laughs> Great. Uh, I probably okay. still do have those things. <laughs> I'm ready to start whenever. 